Welcome to Superlative. I am your podcast host, Ariel Adams. In each episode, you will meet someone who has inspired or takes inspiration from today's wristwatch industry. Every week, let's dive deep into the world of crafting exotic timepieces from the people who dream them up to the people who dream of them. It's time to get started and meet today's guest. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Larry Flowers. He is the founder of the Larry Flowers uh, Jewelry and uh, Watch Company. Uh, Larry, welcome. Ariel, thanks for having me. Very exciting. So we're fellow Los Angelinos, right? You're here in the LA. I sure have been. 20 years now. Time flies. 20 years now. Where did you grow up? I'm original. Well, I was born and raised in Paris, France until I was seven oh. years old. Yeah. And um, moved to Philadelphia when I was seven. Grew up in the Philadelphia area until after college. I uh, went to college at the University of Pittsburgh. Shortly after college, I uh, I packed up my truck and drove cross country to California, and it's been 20 years, and time flies. Now, Pennsylvania, interestingly enough, is a hotbed of watch enthusiasm in the United States. There is actual watchmaking that happens there, especially in cities like Philadelphia. There is a lot of watch sales going on, also a lot of watch buying. A lot of hustling, a lot of really key characters came out of that area. What is it about Pennsylvania and the Philadelphia area in general, according <laughs> to you, that has made it such a hotbed of American horology? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Philadelphians are traditionally very passionate people. Uh, they're great people, and they, uh, when they love something, they go all in. I think that's pretty, uh, pretty obvious as far as the fan base is concerned when it comes to sports and stuff like that, which is kind of my background as well. So... Uh, but I do a lot of business with folks from the Philadelphia area and Pennsylvania and the East Coast. In fact, I do a lot of business with people all over the country. But uh, yeah, Philadelphia is uh, their unique, uh, their unique group of, uh, of people and citizens, and uh, they're they're fun to work with. So Paris, obviously, very important for watches. Uh, Pennsylvania, very important for watches. Los Angeles, we like watches, but it's harder to find a niche. What brought you to Los Angeles, and and were you in? the watch industry at the time, or was it something else? Yeah, good question. Uh, actually, my stepsister went to USC, and I've never listened to her growing up. I, I still don't. Um, <laughs> that's kind of like the little brother in me, right? But um, she had been on me for quite some time about visiting her in uh, in California over my senior year spring break. And I don't know how she somehow convinced me to skip my sk uh, spring break with all my my best buddies going to Acapulco and I went to California instead for a week and she lived right by running Canyon. I stepped out the first morning to, to go do running Canyon. And I said, wow, look at this place and spent a week, loved it. Went back to college, graduated, went home, worked for about six months. And I said, you know what? I was going to move to New York. And I said, I'm going to roll the dice and go to California. I could always come home. And I drove out there. And like I said, it's been 20 years. It's a, it's a good story. I'm a, I'm a local, right? So I grew up here, but I have left and decided to move back. So I feel like I I, I come from both places, right? The, the natural <laughs> sense of being a Los Angelino, but also choosing to return because of some of the lifestyle. Now, one of the things which I like to explain to people in Europe is that America is not just one watch market. There's really many, many different watch markets. And I think that's one of the things I like you to comment on. For the people that don't really know, how would you define the Southern California, Los Angeles watch market and how is it maybe a little bit distinctive from other places, maybe New York or Pennsylvania? 
Yeah, I mean, look, in my experience in the, in, in the industry, I find that a lot of the business that I do with folks that live in Southern California, the L.A. area, Newport Beach and stuff, you know, generally speaking, um, I do a, a large percentage of my sales in that region are some of the higher end type pieces, luxury type pieces, you know, not just necessarily date eights and, you know, platinum pieces, but rare pieces, uh, RMs and Patek Philippe's. Um, I, you know, LA, obviously LA, New York are two of the larger markets, Miami, Chicago. Um, but you know, a lot of the pieces that I, that I tend to work with in Los Angeles are, are some of the, on the more high end spectrum of, of the watch game. But, you know, that said, I sell high-end pieces to folks all over the country. I have a pretty good balance of, of an amazing clients. And, uh, you know, the L.A. market's been very, very good to me. My office is downtown L.A. in the, in the Diamond District. I'm very close to uh, Crypto.com uh, Arena, which is great. I get to go see a bunch of my friends play uh, hockey games and go see my clients and stuff like that. So it's kind of a perfect nucleus of, uh, of being able to bounce around from to Orange County and, and Beverly Hills and so on. But, uh but the, the LA region has been very good to me. Now let's talk a little bit about just getting into the watch business in general. I think it's so interesting, especially in this show where I profile so many men and women in the industry who have come from different places. We're talking about people that make watches, sell watches, design watches, manage watch companies. And the larger point that I'm trying to make, I think with this entire program is the different routes available to getting into an industry. Like if you want to become a doctor, there's like one way of doing it, right? Like you go to medical school, you, you, you got to intern for a bit, you become a doctor. When it comes to watches, there's not a lot of schools for this stuff. People kind of hustle into it. So I love talking about people who have dedicated their lives to watches and, and sort of how they got there. Do you have an interesting origin story? You know what I do? Um, I'm, I got into the precious metals business about 12, 13 years ago with a childhood best friend of mine, uh, buying you know, scrap gold, silver, platinum, uh, loose diamonds, some watches, and kind of learning the game a little bit through you know, buying from the public and kind of researching pieces and stuff like that. And over the course of, uh, of a few years, once the, kind of the gold and, and, and platinum and silver markets started kind of going back down a little bit, we found ourselves in, a, in an interesting position where we had a, a lot of inventory of, again, nice diamonds, loose diamonds, nice timepieces, designer jewelry and stuff like that. And uh, we started to just kind of network those pieces and selling them little by little. And I also had, I, you know, I have a good background in, in the hockey world. And so I've had, I, I would get guys that play in the NHL that would reach out to me and say, hey, Flowers, can you get me this, you know, can you? try to get me this timepiece or can you help me with an engagement, an engagement ring? And so one step at a time and little by little, all of a sudden it grows and then I do a good job and then they send me new clients and all of a sudden uh, I'm selling and trading watches left and right and diamonds as well. And next thing you know, I've become a jeweler. So it's pretty interesting. It was, it was a fun process. So you started with something very traditional, which was the materials themselves. And obviously today in watches, uh, we are not limited to precious metals, right? There's a lot of materials that are used in watches that are inherently not precious, you know, uh, ceramics and carbons and things like that that are not precious, but turn into, into precious things. But as I understand, you know, being into precious metals, um, it's sort of like a commodities game where you have to sort of like buy low and sell just a little bit higher. Uh, and talk a little bit more about what, what that's like. It seems like it's very difficult to sort of like earn earn your skin in that game. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, we, we built a very unique business. It was a, basically an in-home gold party business. 
uh, where we had a bunch of reps that worked for us and they would network and kind of meet, you know, different folks that wanted to have little parties, get together two, three hour windows, people bringing, bringing out their old stuff that they haven't worn for 20, 30, 40 years. Sometimes uh, we paid very, very strong. We, you know, gave a little percentage to the reps. And so we had a really fun little business going where we met a lot of interesting people and learned a lot about, you know, continuing to buy and again, learning a lot about diamonds and watches and stories of really interesting pieces that people had going back generations, which was really cool. And things that are kind of just sitting in boxes that they were ready to part with. And, and so, you know, we were very fair. We paid very strong. We bought a lot of precious metals, a lot of gold, silver, platinum. Um, we melted, I couldn't even tell you how much, I mean, we would have tablefuls of precious metals on a daily basis that we would go and melt uh, it was actually really interesting and it was a really good way of kind of getting, you know, kind of, tie, you know, scrapping up our boots and, and learning the industry, getting knee deep in, in the precious metals game and naturally learning about the watch and jewelry game. I, and so I just want to get into this a little bit more because I think it's fascinating. It doesn't seem easy to do. Uh, you're convincing people to sell you their unwanted uh, jewelry. Yeah. Uh, they just don't wear it and they would like to make some money off of it. You now have this jewelry and it's actually quite hard to sell used jewelry. So what is available to you, which isn't really available for watches, is you can dismantle this jewelry and melt down the metal and sell uh, the precious stones as, as raw materials. Is that really the idea? That's exactly what we did. But listen, for the most part, we really just bought scrap gold, silver, and platinum and melted those things down. Now, if there were pieces that were designer pieces, Cartier or Van Cleef or what, whatever, um, obviously, and they were in good condition, we paid much stronger. We paid more you know, market value, close to market value on those pieces. And then we would try to resell them, um, I'll polish them up a little bit, make them more presentable if they needed to be, uh, have need a little bit of work on. But, um, for the most part, we just dealt with, with scrap, with scrap, uh, precious metals. And then, like you said, if there was diamonds in pieces and stuff, we would obviously pay for them, but we'd pop them out and we'd collect We'd collect, you know, all the diamonds and, and melee and whatnot and, you know, eventually sell it all off or uh, towards the end, we were using it to make our own jewelry. That's fascinating. So you have these raw materials and I imagine there isn't just a marketplace. There isn't just a place you go and be like, we'll buy your diamonds at market rate. Like there's another hustle involved in, in selling a lot of it, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Um, well, we, we were very fortunate to know some great people uh, in the industry that, were very quick to buy. There, there were buyers. We were sellers, and we had a great relationship. We took very, you know, we were very honest and transparent with our with each other, and we worked together for almost five years. You know, this was during the boom of the whole like you would see like the cash for gold stores in every shopping right, right, center. Right. So it was really exciting times. We were knee deep in those times, and we got to meet some really fascinating people. Folks would let us into their homes. Really, really sweet people and their friends and family. It was a. It, I can't think of a better way to really get into the industry. No, I, I, I definitely agree. What was it like from a psychological perspective? Obviously, people want to sit there and pull out their jewelry. They probably have a story that goes with it. It's sort of, a, I can imagine they both want to sell it, but also don't want to sell it. What was the strategy of making them feel comfortable, you know, obviously selling a part of their own family history? Uh, it's a great question. And that was the challenge of the business. And that was kind of the fun of it as well. Everyone had a story about about pieces that they had. This was my grandmother's. This was my great grandmother's engagement ring. I've had more than I can count folks and gals crying in front of me, telling stories about certain pieces um, for the things that didn't seem as sentimental, 
sentimental things that they just kind of were maybe handed down. That wasn't like anything special. I always told, told them if you haven't worn it in two, three, four, five years, you're probably never going to wear it again. And you're probably better off with some of the money. And, um, in, in other instances, when it was something really sentimental, I was totally, uh, open or I was totally open. Like I said, to having them keep it. And, and, and I never pushed for them to sell. I dealt with a lot of old engagement rings. That was, that was very, uh, that was very interesting and heard some stories about some ex-boyfriends and ex-fiancés, uh, <laughs> that weren't always very pleasant. Uh, but I, uh, look, I mean, w- I always tried to kind of make light of, uh, of the entire party and, and make sure everything felt, everyone felt really warm and, and comfortable. And, um, in some instances there were things that were really difficult for some people to let go, but once they yeah. did and it was over, they felt like a weight had been lifted. So it was good to also be a part of that in their lives. Um, you know, there, there's been so many transactions that are more than just transactions. They were more, you know, person to person interactions about their lives and, and their things. Yeah, it really is. It really is. It, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I, it, it's exactly what it was. I've never actually put it that way, but it really was. I, it, it reminds me of an experience that we have from time to time in a blog to watch. And maybe you see this as being familiar. And it basically starts like this. Someone emails us with a picture of an old watch or something like that. It's something that they inherited or they found somewhere. It's from a family member, maybe a father, something like that. And their question is really, what is it? What is it worth? And what I find is interesting is they so hope, not because they need the money, but there's some type of thing like, I really want this family member to have been a more important person (laughs) or to be the type of person to go out there and buy a luxury watch. I just want to imagine that this is what they wore and now this is valuable. So it's less about them being excited about making the money, but there's something about this old watch, maybe it applies to jewelry as well in my family is worth something. And it's hard to sort of let them down and be like, well, it's got a lot of sentimental value, but I wouldn't sell it if I were you. You know that, what I mean? Like you probably have had to have so many of those conversations. I listen, I, so I, I'm, I'm pretty fortunate. Listen, I don't have the biggest following on social media, but I have a pretty good following and I have very loyal followers. Um, and I get a lot of DMS on a daily basis, including people exactly like this scenario where they're, you know, they find things and they ask me, what is it uh, exactly how you put it? It can be a little frustrating for me because I don't, like you said, I don't want to kind of let them down. So sometimes I just remind them that, Hey, that's a really nice piece. Unfortunately, respectfully, it's something that I'm not really interested in, but it's very nice and something that you should probably keep and maybe pass down, you know, to the next generations. So that's, that's just the way of doing it. Be polite and move on. I just think it's funny because you know, there is a practical element to many people with like, nobody wants this, got to get rid of it for right price. But there's also the sentimental element. And I think that's why we love watches and jewelry. But from a commercial standpoint, it can be kind of amusing sometimes where you're like, hey, man, you really bought into this whole, you know, watches as, as being valuable, sentimental things like too much. Like only you see the value in this. Everyone else, it's just one of many available watches out there. And we, we love watches because people form these very personal attachments. But when it comes to the sort of commercial buying and selling side, like that actually is almost a hindrance, right? Yeah, you know, you're right. But, you know, if you look at ourselves as human beings, there's probably a million things sitting around the house that, around the house that you know, to the common eye would just be completely worthless. And it might be something that's worth $3, but we've had it for 20 years because it's got some sentimental value. And I've always said sentimental value, things that have sentimental value are real things. They're part of people's lives, part of their past. And 
uh, you know, and, and if it's something that's really not worth selling based on like a dollar amount that they receive, that's not going to move the needle in any way that they should just keep it. One of the things that I'm being reminded of when chatting with you is the alternative situation when there isn't someone like you to chat with when doing a high value transaction of watches or jewelry. And that is basically going to a brand boutique and having a relatively impersonal conversation. And one of the things that I think is important to recognize is that people need not just the personal conversation sometimes, but they need to feel that there's a validation. They're not buying a commodity. It's not like you're going into the Rolex store saying, I know I need to spend this $10,000 because that's, that's what I need to do and I'll leave after I do it. It's sort of like I need to be convinced. I need to have my hand held that this is the right way of feeling the way you want to feel. And there's a lot of, again, going back to the word therapy, but it's, it's, it's a customer service centric conversation where you get someone to feel that the purchase decision is right for them and that they're comfortable with it. And if there's a problem, you'll be there. And I still haven't really found a corporate store environment which has been able to replicate that type of very almost familial-like um, service provider relationship that you have. You know what I mean? I, I absolutely know what you mean. I When I built my business, I had a very clear goal in mind in the way that I wanted to represent myself and my company, a very transparent uh, I always call, I always consider myself a guy's guy's jeweler, someone that I, I can have a good conversation with. Uh, you often won't hear jewelers talk the way I do. Um, you know, I, I, I could, you know, I usually get into good conversations that have nothing to do with our business while talking to potential clients. I'll tell you a good story. This is uh, about three weeks ago. I had a couple who were looking and kind of looking around on social media for a jeweler they had been married for 20-something years. They're from Santa Barbara, California. You know, middle-aged, very, very nice couple. And they, they, they were looking for a jeweler. And they looked at a bunch of different Instagrams and, and TikToks and whatnot. And they came, a, they came about my page and reached out to me. And we made an appointment. They came in to my office. And while having some introductory conversations, I asked them, you know, why did you come here to me? Uh, let me back up. They, they were coming in for an engagement ring, which she never got her. You know, they've been married for a long time, but they, she never had right. a proper ring. So I said, you know, why did you come to me? And they said, you know, we've looked at so many different Instagrams and different social medias of different drawers. And we watched some of your videos and we just felt you were the most on, I, not, not honest. They said uh, they, you came across very um, authentic it was about you. It was about your company. Uh, we just felt you, we were very comfortable with you. And so they came in and they, they spent quite a bit of money on a beautiful engagement ring. Never have met me before. They bought on the spot, built the ring, shipped it out. They received it uh, late last week and uh, they, they couldn't be happier. I built them a beautiful engagement ring. It was really a cool story. You know, stuff like that doesn't usually happen every day. Um, I work with, people all over the country, people I don't know, of course. Um, but most of those people kind of follow me already and see what I do. But in this instance, it was really neat to kind of meet people that had just met me and just literally put their faith into me and, and, and their compliments resonated with me on another level. and just reminded me to just continue to do what I'm doing and be authentic. To be authentic is literally, it's, it's my entire brand, transparency, honesty, make the best of the best quality jewelry, uh, hit singles, ask for referrals in return. It's worked for me. I talk to all of my clients personally. I have no one that deals with my clients uh, direct. 
Uh, so I'm on the phone nonstop every day, all day. It's tiresome, but it's very rewarding knowing, you know, I, I, in fact, I had a call today with a client for an engagement ring that said, I didn't expect for you to call me back. I thought it would be someone from your office. And I said, I, I deal with all my clients direct. You know, the, I've always been a people person. And, um, and yeah, that, the, the story of that couple coming into my office is a perfect example of, of, um, of, of what I'd like to be portrayed as, as a jeweler. And, and it works well for me. Tell me if you sort of agree with this statement, because I, I study this psychology, especially since I, you know, I spend a lot of time consulting with the major brands that can't quite seem to figure this out. And what I try to explain to them, at least in America, and I'm guessing it's similar anywhere in the world, is when a customer is willing to spend a lot of money, they want to be personally made to feel good as part of the process. They want to feel, it's a little bit more, more extensive than they want their money to be valued. They want to feel good after the transaction. They want the people they're doing business with to fundamentally thank them and make them feel appreciative. And you can spend a huge amount of money and ultimately feel bad because you feel that the people you did business with don't want your money, that you were kind of um, maybe misled or not given exactly what you want. And you know, you as a retailer, you can't create the money for people. But once they have it, you can create the experience that allows them to feel like it was, it was well spent. And in America, we have a wonderful culture that if you're in a bad mood, you can fix it if you have money, right? Retail therapy, we call it. <laughs> but what people don't always talk about, not all transactions make you feel good. No. Some make you feel terrible. And in the luxury space, this is so important because there is an arm of the industry which thrives on making people feel insecure and uncomfortable, the richest among us. And I don't like this because I think that Leveraging the, the insecurity angle too much leads to bad feelings, which is not what we want because people go to watches and jewelry and other luxury things and it's time to feel good. It's not just wearing it that makes you feel good, but acquiring it also makes you feel good. So I love some of your thoughts on this, we'll call it a theory of best practices in luxury retail that I have. It's really interesting you brought that up because I can't tell you how many people I speak to on a daily basis that go into other watch stores or or, or jewelry stores and, and have very cold interactions. And they, they tell them, they, they tell me about them and I never understand it. I mean, listen, I couldn't understand maybe when you're walking into a retail store and you're dealing with someone that's an employee that's having a bad day, that kind of doesn't have all their, you know, the skin in the game, you know, sweat equity into the business. Maybe you're not going to get all that love from that salesperson, but you're 100% right. I mean, people, when they go shopping, they, it's an experience, especially when it comes to jewelry, things that they're going to wear for a long time, and when, whether they be for themselves or, or as gifts, which is even more sentimental, or, 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 or a watch for themselves to, to congratulate themselves on, on a job well done in whatever field they do or, or an accomplishment. But it is an experience, and, and you, really need to, to, you really need to be able to communicate with people and, and build relationships. I have made friends with people that I've never met in my life through my business that are now some of my closest friends. And that's one of the coolest things I can really pull out of, of my journey through building my business. Um, I, I, one in particular, I'm going to throw his name out there. His name is Keith Cohen. He's an incredible human being. He's one of my closest friends. He's from Washington, D.C. Um, I built him an incredible engagement ring. He's a big hockey fan. He came to me because of obviously my background in the hockey world and, and we hit it off. I built him a gorgeous uh, green emerald uh, engagement ring for his wife, Sophia now. 
and uh, we've become amazing friends. There, I have a lot of stories like that, but that's, you know, again, I deal with my clients. I'm the owner of my company. I like my clients to feel like they're a part of my lives because they are. And it makes my job a little bit more rewarding too. I've had opportunities to kind of branch out my business, hire salespeople, uh, kind of of grow my business from the inside out and being a little bit more hands-off as far as dealing with clients. But that's kind of my gift, right? That's what I do. And that's what I enjoy doing. If I didn't enjoy doing it, I probably wouldn't do well at it. And I don't really want to be one of those companies where my clients are dealing with other people. People reach out to me, and this this is an old saying by most people that know me. People don't necessarily do business with me because I have great inventory. They do business because they want to they want to work with me. You know, I, I I take a lot of pride in the relationships that I've built over the years. I've got incredible friends. I've got incredible family. I, I've worked really hard in, in building incredible relationships within the sports world and the hockey community. Uh, and I value that. And that's, that's something that I've always been really good. At. I was never a great student. Um, I was always a little bit of a pain in the ass growing up, but I was always good with people. And I, I, I was always honest with people. So, you know, that, 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 that probably is a huge part of my, of my success. And, uh, that to me, it's the only way to do business. I mean, what I like as part of my journey in, in the watch world is going around the world, loving two types of personalities the most. And that is the people that design watches and the people that sell watches. And there's a very specific type of, of character. And again, you find uh, these individuals around the world, you're one of them. Uh, they're all extremely people-centric and relationship-centric. Uh, they're, they're extremely uh, nuanced in, in relationships and the interactions people have and knowing, uh, being able to read people, knowing when someone's happy or when they want something. Um, and they always have a bit of a flair to them, right? They always want to, they're always people that you, you maybe want to be friends with, or at least want to have a friendly conversation with. And they are these, you know, ambassadors of culture, right? Because they are, you know, they, they always dress in a way which is very communicative and talk in a way which is communicative. And I'm, I'm drawn to these people because I, I love salesmanship, if you want to call it that. I'm fascinated by, I'm not a good salesperson myself. I like reporting on it. I'm an, I'm an analytic (laughs) person, but I, I think that there's, there's unsung heroes. And when I say unsung is that, you know, the people that wear a lot of the important brands wear them because of people such as yourself. You know, it isn't necessarily that Richard Meal uh, as a brand was so great at, at, at building itself. It was the people wearing it and the people talking about it um, that really brought it to where it is. And I think some of the other popular brands, you can, you can also trace the current popularity back to who's selling it and who's wearing it as opposed to what's being made. The brands themselves, they're like, no, it's our product. It's because it's awesomely made and it looks so freaking good and it's so beautiful. It might be all those things, but they miss out on the sort of social conversation element. Um, and, and I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on, on you know, your role in popularizing models and brands. Yeah, you're 100% right. So in a lot of my videos, I like to wear different watches and I'll talk about different instances where this watch might be good for, you know, this event or this watch might be good for this event and where to not wear this type of piece. But you're right. Listen, it's really about letting your your followers and the people that do business with you and, and, and kind of guiding them into things that best fit their character and what they're trying to buy the watch for um does do they want it to be more of a casual piece is it something that they want to kind of pat themselves on the shoulder for a successful you know thing that they've accomplished 
Um, there's a lot of different elements to why people buy, uh, especially timepieces. And, and I get asked all the time for, for my advice. You know, a lot of people, like, I'm an indecisive, indecisive person naturally, and a lot of my clients are as well, and they kind of lean on me to advise them on pieces uh, that fit their lifestyle and, and for what they want to do. You know, for those for those folks, you know, that want to spend, you know, a pretty penny on a really nice piece, but they're really active and they want to wear their watch all the time, I advise them against getting something like a day date because they're going to kind of mess it up a little bit. You know, something with an oyster flex might make a little bit more sense, a rubber strap, it's sporty, but yet classy. You know, is it someone that wears a suit every day that wants to personify themselves as someone that's, you know, professional and, and, and every day? Um, there's a lot of different elements. Um, but trends is also a really important part of, of the buy, of the watch buying process. And uh, I, I love being a part of that decision making with my clients. When your client ultimately chooses something, is it just sort of a matter of personal taste? Is it something where you push them? Does it come down to availability and pricing? What do you see as being some of the crucial factors in sending them, you know, over the edge to buy. Because what, one of the things that impresses me is that if you are a casual watch lover that just sort of has the money, wants to wear nice watches, the amount of options that you can buy is truly overwhelming, right? So you can be like a nerd like me and know all the little details and be like, no, I want this one because it's got this tiny little thing that I like. But that's above and beyond what I think most people can grasp in terms of their understanding of this hobby. What, what are some of the factors that sort of you know, push them the over edge? I'm like, okay, I'm going to buy this. Yeah, I mean, obviously, listen, they're build their size, are they bigger guys or, or, or women? Are they, are they, are they shorter? Or are they taller? Are they, do you have big wrists? You know, are they into sports? Are they not into sports? Are they looking, you know, I, I always ask what's your ballpark budget because now all of a sudden I get a number. Someone says my ballpark budget is 20 to 25,000 immediately in my brain, boom, 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 boom. I have X amount of pieces that immediately come up that I could suggest to them. So, but it's, 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 the most important thing is to have a conversation with them and kind of let them naturally open up to you and let you know kind of where they're at. It's really important for me to ask them very simple questions and let them kind of, like I said, open up to me so I can, so I can better understand how I can serve them. But I'm also really, really big on value. Uh, when I offer, when I offer or suggest pieces to clients, it's it, a lot of it has to do with long-term value. Uh, there are certain brands that I love to work with. Um, and so sometimes someone may, um, approach me with a certain model of, of a certain brand that they may like, and I will kind of go a little bit above and beyond to try to push them out of it. Not completely because someone's what someone likes is what someone likes. And I get that, but I'm also being a watch dealer and someone that always wants to look out for their clients. I, I'm really big on making sure that they're buying pieces that will really, truly hold their value. I think that's important to me. Where in reality, listen, a lot of the a lot of the brands that aren't necessarily pieces that hold their value long term are generally speaking in the watch industry some pieces that you can make the most money on. But that again, that that's not really what it's about for me. It's about knowing that people are buying the right pieces based on, you know, what type of lifestyle they have, what kind of budget they have, and and really what direction they want to go in. Hi, this is Ariel Adams, founder of A Blog to Watch, with a message about eBay. I visit eBay daily and have been relying on eBay to learn about and acquire watches for more than 20 years. Did you know that you can now buy watches directly from brands or their authorized dealers on eBay? Timepieces coveted by watch enthusiasts from brands like Zodiac, Loco, Parallel, and more are part of eBay's Certified by Brand program. 
Here's how it works. Luxury Names are partnering with eBay to bring brand new and pre-owned watches and other luxury accessories directly to you. Certified by brand includes a minimum one-year factory warranty for watches and offers an unprecedented selection of new and used watches directly from the source, all with the peace of mind you can expect from eBay. Visit ebay.com slash certified by brand for more information. I want to have your thoughts on the relatively, I'll call it a modern phenomenon, though to some people that's all they know, and that is sort of this obsession with resale value. It's undeniably part of so many conversations you have. It probably annoys you to this point, but there are just so uh, such a large sentiment now where people feel that in addition to making sure that they can afford it and that it's nice and it's well-made, it's like, can I resell it? Is it going to hold its value? And I, what I'll add to this is very few people actually ever realize this, right? They don't actually go and resell it, but it's like something that they want to know on their mind. I get frustrated by this because watches are not financial assets. They are things that you, you spend money on your hobby. You don't make money on your hobby, Right. Um, and unless you're someone like you or me, you're not making money in the watch industry. You're spending money on the watch industry. You're making money doing something else. So how do you navigate these conversations with some people that feel so strongly that value retention is something you need to focus on when in reality they've sort of been manipulated into this? And no, that's not really what they should be focusing on. How do you approach that? Yeah, I go back to the word transparency. That's really what it's all about. I, I, and with most pieces, pieces especially that I, that I suggest, for them to purchase. Um, I usually tell them, listen, you wear this for a year or two, you know, maybe worst case scenario, you lose anywhere between 10, 15 plus percent, you know, depending on where the market is. I can't, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know where the market is going to be, but you know, in many instances, a lot of people, a lot of pieces have gone up in value, especially, you know, going back a couple of years ago, but on certain pieces, you know, mostly good stainless steel Rolexes, Pateks, a lot of APs, you know, for the most part, if you're buying them well, which is also really, really important, if you don't get bent over, maybe you lose, again, maybe 10, worst case, 15%, and to wear something for two, three, you know, one, two, three years, and then you want to get rid of it, obviously, it's going to need to be serviced and whatnot and cleaned up. Um, and to lose, you know, obviously, you're going to have to lose a little bit unless the piece jumps up in, in value uh, for whatever reason. I think that's fair. You know, I, as dealers, we have an obligation to obviously it's a business and we have to leave ourselves a little bit of wiggle room when we're purchasing pieces from the public. You know, we always look at wholesale. That That's the, that's the most important component of, of buying pieces. And the reason why that is, is, you know, we always tell people what, well, you know, someone will try to sell me a watch and they'll say, well, I see them online everywhere. They're worth 50 grand. Um, you know, how can you possibly offer me 35,000? Uh, and I remind them, that I have to give myself a little cushion. I'm going to have to service the watch, but let me ask you a question. What happens if I buy the watch from you and you want to buy it back and the value goes and, and the value go, and the value goes up? Am I going to send you back money or are you going to send me back money? You know what I mean? So it's all about being again, transparent and, and making sure that they understand that when we're buying from the public, uh, that we're giving them fair market, uh, for their pieces and, uh, and, and being really honest with people. I try to explain to people that, you know, there's no truth police on the internet. Totally. And what I mean by that is totally. you can publish whatever you want. If you want totally. to take a watch and publish it on your website as being costing a million dollars, you can do that. The, 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 you best, know? the best thing about people that come to me with what they found on a website or this and the other, I always ask them, 
did you call them? Did you call them? And they always say no. And I respond, you should go call them and see what they say. And for the few who decide to call my bluff and to go and call that dealer that has a watch that's too good to be true, oh, I couldn't believe it. You were right. He told me that he had sold the watch, but he can get another one for a different price. Or, you know, um, he has the watch, but he can't. He doesn't have the papers and he can't authenticate it or whatever the case may be. Online can be very, very deceiving. It's one of the more frustrating parts of my business, but it's also really, I kind of use it. um, I kind of use it to my advantage again, because I remind people, if you think something is too good to be true, if you know a little something about the watch market and the watch business and uh, about specific pieces and you find something online, that's just too good to be true. it, It probably is because no one's just giving away their money. Right? So I always tell people, you think you found something that's too good to be true. Give them a call and see what they say. And then give me a call back when to tell me that I was right. Another situation which I think is important is the fact that people hope, they feel that they can deceive, you know, the Dom Perignon effect. If I charge more, people will think it's worth that much. And so people just can, they. it's like they're fishing. It's like some weird, like digital fishing. They're like, I'll put it this crazy price and see what happens. And there's this mentality. And I think dealers, honestly, are a little bit guilty of this. They're like, there's some stupid person out there that'll think this is the right price. And I I think it's a problem. I think what needs to happen more is people need to start using price aggregators. You know, there used to be, if you're buying like a computer online, you'd see this price comparison tool and you recognize, wait a minute, this high price is an outlier. Most of the most of the people listing this is 10,000, but this guy wants 50,000. This guy's clearly crazy. And I think that you need to be brought down to earth a little bit. Let me ask you a question because we talk about this in the office all the time. And um, we think the reason why some watch dealers put prices that are just not realistic is because it kind of keeps the people that they feel might waste their time away. And it may attract those people who know the game that would call and say, hey, you actually have this watch. I, I'm not going to pay you that. But what's, what's a realistic price? I You're thinking think- like a dealer. You're yeah. thinking like a dealer. I mean, that's what I think they do. I don't do that. I certainly don't do that. Um, I Another thing you should know about me, very important, I, I don't negotiate. I'm very, very proud of that. I give the best price on market. I know the market intimately. I, I, when I give a price, I'm very firm. You know, once in a blue moon, if someone, you know, they, if, if it's just beyond their reach and it, it makes their day and it's maybe that will happen here and there. But for the most part, uh, listen, power is inventory, right? We have an incredible inventory. We've got over 170 uh, pieces in our inventory, everything from AP, Rolex, uh, Patek is what we kind of specialize in, Breitlings, RMs. But, you know, we really focus on, uh, at Larry Flowers, we really focus on Rolex, AP, and Patek when it comes to the watches. So we have inventory. We buy really well. And the entire model is to just kind of move units, right? So... Again, it goes back to hitting singles and asking for referrals in return. I'm never trying to hit a home run on, on, on a watch sale. I know, the, I know the market, like I said, intimately. I give a very, very fair price. Uh, all my watches are guaranteed, uh, which is also very important. And uh, to me, there's just no other way to do business. Is there ever an incentive to go a little bit more with the independence? Because I know that dealers of your ilk tend to go in one of two directions. It's stick with those four or five or six brands that are the most popular, or I'll go the other way and I'll specialize in kind of the weird stranger stuff. And I'm just wondering if for you, you've ever been uh, tantalized by the world of the smaller watch brands. I have. I've been 
I don't know if fortunate is the right word. Maybe it is. But since I've gotten to the business, I have had the majority of my clients on the more well-off, you know, type of folk uh, that kind of gravitate towards things like Rolex and AP. And so that's kind of just something that I've really focused on. Obviously, there's a huge market with so many different brands and, and there's a lot of money to make with all of those brands. But I've enjoyed kind of being in the space that I'm in. Uh, again, I started working for the most part with professional athletes. So naturally, I was dealing with you know some of the more expensive timepieces and, um, and eventually continued to grow within the hockey community, fans and coaches and, and stuff like that. So my network grew you know, very, very quickly. And so I kind of fell into working with, you know, more expensive pieces. But, you know, Rolex also has, you know, I sell pieces out of Rolex that are anywhere between seven, eight grand. I know that sounds like a lot of money to some people, and it is. But, you know, Rolex, you can get into a really nice Rolex for nine to 10 grand also. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about that sports world because it is an area that you distinguish yourself. It's obviously important to you within the, the sports world. I understand you have a particular passion for hockey, but talk a little bit about how that frames your business and how that gives you special advantages. Yeah, totally. Uh, I, 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 was a, I was very fortunate to be a part of one of the greatest stories, so they say, uh, from a fan's perspective in, 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 the, in NHL history. One of my best friends played for the St. Louis Blues for a few years, and I got very close with that organization. And uh, going back uh, five years now, uh, the St. Louis Blues were picked by many sports writers to be, you know, to win the Stanley Cup, and and were the odds-on favorites. And you know, I, I was friends with the entire team. And halfway through the season, they were literally dead last in the NHL. Uh, very disappointing. And so they were coming to Philadelphia to play, play the Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, it was around February. And so I set up a very special little one-time party for a bunch of my friends that played for the Blues. The Philadelphia Eagles were playing a playoff game. We had it at a local uh, private members-only bar that we all hang out in in South Philly. And we made it a really special event. It was a lot of fun. We had a DJ all home-cooked food from all the moms. And, I mean, it was completely packed. It was a really cool experience for all the guys from the neighborhood that you know don't get the opportunity to hang out with professional athletes. And so they, they, all my friends showed up from the blues and we had a really great night. And I'm sitting at the bar with uh, one of the, one of the assistant captains of the St. Louis blues, Alex Steen. And we're kind of just talking and he was a, you know, he had a big role in kind of helping build that team. And he kind of had his head down and we're talking. He's like, man, I worked so hard and trying to help build this team. And we're dead last in the NHL. And I don't know what we're going to do. And we're kind of just, you know, whatever, like, just got to keep fighting. What, do you, what can you do? And we look over, and one of our buddies who's on the team also, Robbie Fabry, who's a young guy who's never heard the song Gloria by Laura Branigan. The song is playing. And uh, Robbie Fabry, like I said, he's a young kid, and he loved the song, and he kept screaming, play Gloria, play Gloria. He liked the song. And Steiner's looking at me, and he looks back at me and says, uh, he says I look at Fabry over there. She's so funny. He says, uh, fuck, I'll do anything. I'll do anything for a win right now for, for the boys. He says, fuck it. And sorry for cursing, but he says, fuck it. Uh, if we win tomorrow, I'll play the stupid song in the locker room. And we kind of laughed it off and it was no big deal. And so the next night they played the Philadelphia Flyers and they win three, nothing. And they play the song in the locker room and, <laughs> uh, and, and we're all texting on the group chat and it's like, whatever. And then next day is like, nothing happened. And then the next game they win again. And then the next game they win again. 
And before you know it, they're playing the song in the locker room. It's kind of becoming the theme of their team, and they're got, they're getting a little bit of win. You know, they're getting a little theme uh, behind them, and they're starting to win and win, and they go on a ten win, ten game win streak. And now there were this thing is kind of starting to really get some momentum. And uh, two of my friends, Ryan Whitney and Paul Bizanet, who are uh, on Spit and Chicklets, one of the biggest sports podcasts in the world, asked me to come on and tell the story of why this is happening. The Blues are kind of starting to climb out of the cellar a little bit. I went on Spit and Chicklets, told the story, and now an entire audience, you know, I think they get, gosh, I think they get almost half a million downloads an episode. They're really big. And now you have all these people that kind of learned who I was other than just guys that play in the NHL. And, you know, we told my story a little bit and then the story about the Blues. And lo and behold, the St. Louis Blues continued to climb out of the cellar and made the playoffs and fought all the way to the Stanley Cup finals and won the Stanley Cup. And it was one of the greatest stories in the NHL and NHL history. And I was a big part of it. They put me in the parade and they had me on a team stage at the end of on the, under the arch in St. Louis in front of 1.5 million people. And then we all went on the team jet and flew to Vegas together. We had the Stanley cup. I have pictures with the, it was really an incredible, incredible story. Um, anyone that's familiar with the hockey world knows the story and, and it catapulted my business, you know, again, beyond just the players, but within the entire hockey community from fans to college players, high school players and so on. And, and so it, it literally changed my life. And uh, That's exciting. What a great story. Congratulations for that. Yeah, it was, you know, it was a really, really, really special moment in my life. And um, I've gone through some really tough uh, downfalls in my life, losing one of my best friends, my old business partner. And so it was kind of like a neck and neck, it's kind of like a, a, a story that, where two two entities were kind of down and out and, and and met together at the same time to rebuild. You know, I was rebuilding my life and my business, and I was just starting to get back on my feet. And the St. Louis Blues were picked to win the Stanley Cup that year, and they were dead last. And you know, I was really close with them, and we both kind of helped each other to, by chance or a miracle, or I don't know what it was, but we kind of both were a part of each other's lives and our each other's stories. And it changed my life. My business exploded from there. And uh, yeah, it's, the rest is history. Now, you're obviously a very dedicated fan of hockey. I'm not as big of a sports fan, but I think hockey is very cool. It's one of the more um, exciting uh, sports to watch. And it's extremely hard. So it's a, an enormous feat of athleticism. Uh, but what I want to ask is this. A couple of brands have tried to sponsor elements of the of the NHL, you know, work with players and things like that. I remember meeting Wayne Gretzky one time because he was working with Breitling. That was really cool. His yeah. watch tastes are, are interesting. But what would you recommend is the right way, if you are a brand, of working with something like the NHL? Because, again, there's right and wrong ways to do it. It's obviously very expensive to sponsor the entire thing or teams. Uh, what, what, give them some advice because, obviously, you're very passionate about seeing more involvement in the sport. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, I'm – I'm now officially involved in the NHL. I'm the official jeweler of the Los Angeles Kings, which is an incredible honor. Oh, congrats! Yeah, and um, it, it was a it was a tough decision, you know. Obviously, to to be a part of one of the largest and most famous sports arenas in the world as a as a marketing partner is not free. But I do have incredible connections and relationships with people. Uh, within the AEG uh, family, which is the group that owns Crypto.com Arena and the LA Kings and the O2 in England, in London and so on. But, um, you know, they kind of helped get my deal over the goal line and uh, and make me a part of their organization, which is an incredible honor. But, you know, I think when it comes to 
sponsoring or, or trying to be a part of a professional sports team or trying to get your products out there, I think the most important thing is probably to make sure that you've got a really found uh, a really strong foundation um, within your business so people understand who you are. I, I, and it goes back to, right, people don't necessarily – people can almost go anywhere to buy a watch. People can go anywhere to buy a car. and People can go anywhere to buy anything, right? But sometimes when it comes to something as personal as – luxury timepieces, your custom jewelry, engagement rings. People want to work with a specific person that they feel comfortable with. And that's something that, you know, I've worked really hard to build. And, and now that I've got the recognition from so many folks, you know, not only throughout the entire hockey community all over the country, but it's better, uh, really in LA as well, because I've been there for so long and I know so many people out there now. Um, it just felt like the right fit and the right time to, to, to be involved in something like that. And, uh, it's really, it's really a special thing. The first time I saw my name up on the big jumbotron, you know, on the lower rim, uh, with my logo and you watch games on TV and you see my logo on the ice and behind the glass on television. Uh, we have a really cool thing that we do it, you know, during intermission shooting pucks from center ice with special fan, with, with random fans, you know, they, they scored, they win a Rolex, you know, live engagements, you know, at, at, hockey games on the jumbo trying someone you know proposing the kings do it really well they do it really the, well the kings are a, they are they are a top-notch uh sports organization i've been around a lot of professional sports teams they are second to none as far as uh quality and dedication to yeah. the fans and and to the the people that work for them uh they're an incredible ownership group management group uh, i love the la kings i'm truly truly honored to be a part of their family Let's talk about the players a little bit, you know, and what's going on in their minds. It's known that if you're a, you know, a successful athlete, you like to show it off. Athletes historically have been amongst the sort of bling here of Americans in terms of showing things off. Uh, and I think sometimes even more so than, you know, musicians and things like that. But talk a little bit about what's in their mind. They want to buy a watch. What are the hopes they have, the fears they have? Obviously, there's a lot of gravitation towards, um, you know, the, the known brands. But, uh, you know, help get inside of their head a little bit. What, what should people know about them as watch lovers? You know, if I talk about hockey players as a whole are generally really low-key type of people. They're not really in front of the camera types. Um, they're not quite as loud as some other athletes. Um, you know, I also work with a lot of Major League Baseball players, um, I feel like football players are the loudest. Football, <laughs> football, basketball, they can be loud, but I work with a lot of guys in the NFL as well. But yeah. for the most part, the majority of the of the athletes that I work with are really um, low key uh, type of people that you know aren't looking to buy you know blinged out, bust down type watches and stuff like that. Uh, it's just not really their style. It's not really something that I specialize in. I mean, I do it if I need, if I have to. It's not a problem. But uh, for the most part the majority of the people that I work with are just guys, guys, professional athletes that can relate to me and my story and guys that we could go out to dinner if they're in town and, and sit down and have a, a meal together and really just hit it off and get along just very naturally. Those are the type of people that I prefer to work with, by the way, all of my clients, not just professional athletes, but anyone that I work with, I, I just really like working with people that are down to earth that I can have a normal conversation with and even potentially become good friends with, uh, which is you know what, what's happened in so many instances, not only with, you know, random people like my old, like that story with Keith Cohn, but a lot of professional athletes I've become incredible friends with just through business. But yeah, again, uh, the majority of the, of the pro athletes that I work with are just regular, regular guys that just happen to be ridiculously good athletes and work really hard at their craft and turned out to make a lot of money playing professional sports. But they're all pretty humble guys. And, and those are the type of people that I really enjoy spending my time with. 
I think it's interesting you point that out because I, I look at this on the international basis because especially in the watch industry, a lot of the assessments and evaluations of American sports happens from Europe where their closest association with sports is, um, you know, football, soccer, which is very different than American uh, mentality towards a lot of things. For example, in Europe, there's almost an exclusive celebration of specific um, players. And I think in America, it's a little bit more distributed. There isn't like one player who's like universally loved and things yeah. like that. Like it's a little bit more spread out. Same thing with the teams. And there's just, there's just a lot of different elements to it. But what I try to explain to them is that most of the athletes are not like rock stars. Like once in a while, you have a rock star one that wants to have like a whole brand made around them and a clothing line and a bunch of merchandising deals. And they really want to sell themselves in addition to being a good athlete. But those are the outliers. That is not most of them. Most athletes, in a sense, are like a very high-end blue-collar position. Uh, they see themselves as having a craft that they have to be good at and their popularity really only remains as long as they're good at that craft and that there's a known lifespan. You know, you're not going to be doing this into your 50s. So you sort of have to work as hard as you can during this time and then have a plan for what to do after that. Um, so I think that it's, it's very interesting to talk about this because when, again, the Europeans are imagining this, they're not like, you know, most American athletes aren't like a bunch of Cristiano Ronaldo's. You know, like it's really not like that. Like that would be very rare, yeah. actually. You know, most teams don't even have guys like that. Yeah, I mean, again, in the NHL, you have guys like Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby, right? The two best players in the world, two future Hall of Famers, two of the best in the history of the game. Two very good friends of mine, both very good friends of mine. And I could be walking down the street with either of them in California and maybe one or two out of 10 might even recognize them. Uh, and they like it that way, which is kind of cool, right? Um, that's just kind of how they were raised. You know, hockey obviously is really big in the United States, but I think the percentage of guys that are from the U.S. with that kind of U.S. mentality that wants to be a little bit more in front of the camera or a little bit loud and and, and uh, you know more colorful, uh, I think I think it's probably about twenty percent, give or take, uh, players in the NHL that are from the U.S. But you know, most of them are from Canada and, and Sweden, Czech Republic. Russia, you know, and, and, and hockey is a sport that dedicated where you, it, they dedicate a lot of time to the craft. And so, you know, for the most part, the majority of those athletes are not really front and center and looking to, you know, be seen and recognized as much. Now that said, you get them privately and you get them, you know, under one roof with a bunch of friends where they feel comfortable and a whole different human comes out. And that's where, <laughs> that's where, that's where the good stories come out. But uh, I'll leave those stories for offline. Now, the Larry Flowers brand makes some jewelry, right? You do some jewelry manufacture. Of course. In watches, you, you don't do that now. Is there ever an incentive or an interest in putting your name on timepieces? I mean, it is one of many directions to go in, or are you happy selling, you know, essentially, you know, pre-owned watches of popular brands? Unbelievable question. I've been approached in the past to potentially do something like that. Really low ticket items, nice looking watches just for the other, just for people that want to spend, you know, anywhere between, you know, one and $300. Uh, I have been approached. I thought it was a really cool idea, but I'm also of the mindset where I'm still pretty early in my career. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a relatively young guy. I'm 44 years old and I feel like I want to continue to solidify myself as, as a legitimate player in the watch and jewelry space. 
Uh, and so if, if that day should come, I don't think it's going to be today, but it's definitely possible. And like I said, I've been approached to do it. And I think it's a really cool idea. It would be amazing to have my own watch brand, uh, something that I can kind of put my foot, my, my, um, my thumbprint on and, and help design and, and be a part of. I think that could be something really, really special one day. But as of right now, I'm very, very happy continuing to grow my brand organically and, and to continue to better myself uh, in the industry. And as far as jewelry, again, I, I've, I've teamed up with some incredible people in the industry. I do all of my own manufacturing. Everything is handcrafted, top of the line, designer quality. Uh, you know, when we put diamonds together, it's, it's very specific to the millimeter, making sure everything matches perfect. I mean, we take a we take really, really precision care of everything we build and make sure that, you know, excellence is it's excellence or nothing. Right. That, that's exactly how we grow our business. And that's exactly the business that I want to be in. And it's worked well for me. And, you know, also, look, to be able to build, you know, top of the line designer quality jewelry um, and, and offer those, that jewelry at wholesale prices and, and to do what I do in the watch game. You know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it, it helps me go to sleep at night really, really well, and and to know that I'm taking proper care of people, not taking advantage of clients, and that's that's Liar Flower Jewelry. Here's a question related to some of your inventory, and again, it's something I'm asking uh, others. Uh, right now, we we live in the world of certified pre-owned, um, yeah. and there's a lot of different strings attached to, it, and that can mean a bunch of different things. But I wonder how would that affect your business. If the products you sold were able to be attached some certified pre-owned thing, this is certified pre-owned by Audemars Piguet, or, would that help you or does that not really matter? I, I, it, it, it doesn't. A lot of people have sent me the articles and they were all coming out regarding that. Regarding that uh, I, I'm not worried 1% about it. I don't think it hurts me. I think if anything, it creates more buzz and excitement. No, no, if game. you could sell it, meaning if you had the ability... And someone buying a watch from you, you could also say, and by the way, this is this is a certified pre-owned by Audemars Piguet. Yeah, um, obviously it would be enticing to be able to, do, to to be able to be a part of of something like that. It just further solidifies yourself as legit. But that said, I already consider myself completely legit, and everything that I everything I do and everything I sell is one hundred percent guaranteed, and I know what I'm selling. So would it be would, would it be something of of serious interest? Absolutely. I would love to have that conversation if it ever. I would I would have it if if it came to me. But if it doesn't, that's okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, of course, I'm always open to any possibility or any idea that someone wants to approach me with. Well, you know, whether it's personally or business related. But I I I, I guess thinking about it, I never really thought about it. But well, I, I'd be here's my reasoning. Right yeah. now, individuals like yourself are extremely good at selling product because of your relationships. But acquiring the product to begin with is where a lot of challenges. It's sort of this odd thing where it's harder to sometimes acquire than to offload, and, and i.e. to sell. So what if you could have a slightly different relationship? You're not necessarily an authorized dealer, but you go to brands and say, hey, I'm on a regular basis selling pre-owned stuff. Let me acquire from you or uh, uh, some type of either inventory ability to say it's, author it's, 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 it's certified pre-owned and there's some type of way working together because – there, there's, there's no way of interfering, in my opinion, with the long-term success of you and other dealers like you. Like watch brands who may not want you to sell their things. There's nothing they can do. So they might as well join you and work with you and see you as another arm of, of official distribution. Uh, it, that's, in my opinion, 
a possible thing that would be good for a lot of brands. Uh, really having more of a partnership relationship with you and expanding what certified pre-owned is. And I think I think everybody wins. I think consumer wins. I think you win. I think brands win. So this is a, a theory that I'm trying to sort of establish and, and, and discuss. But you can see that it, rather than trying to go against the tide, it goes with the tide. The current is going this way. Uh, Larry Flowers and other people like him around the world are doing such an excellent job forming and maintaining relationships with people that want to buy your product. Work, work with them rather than forcing the people they're reaching to use completely different channels to buy uh, some of the products you have. You know, you know, see what I'm saying? I, I think I may owe you a consulting fee. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, but it is, it is my brilliant. mission. I, I, that is absolutely brilliant. Uh, I'm a little bit taken back by what an idea that is. And, and I, yeah, I mean... I would, that, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Honestly, I'm a, a little bit of a loss for words because I'm, I'm a little overwhelmed with how, with how incredible that idea is. And I, I don't disagree. And it only helps the brand for sure. Um, you know, get their product out there and, and, and with dealers that are trustworthy, honest, and, and can represent their, their brands properly. I, yeah. I mean, you're hundred percent right. I'm glad, I'm glad to, to hear you say that. Uh, over the weekend, we published an article on the blog to watch about answering the question why brands are getting into certified pre-owned because there's a question, you know, I think consumers are getting uh, curious about this because you're starting to see more and more of it. So the way that I work is I just do research on these issues. I see how everyone feels, you and consumers and brands, and then I start to make recommendations. Okay, everyone, this is how everyone feels. Because remember, like, brand presidents have conversations with you like never. So it's up to me to say, you know what, these people in the United States, like Larry Flowers, that have these amazing followings and are able to have a huge sway with their consumers, this is something they would like to do. They would never otherwise know or even think about this stuff. So I have to not only form these ideas and study the market, but I also have to connect all these different disparate parts of the industry that very few people other than me actually speak to. Truly brilliant. Truly brilliant. Okay, great, Good great. Freedom. So we'll keep, we'll keep working on that. Um, we're basically out of time. Um, any final things you'd like anyone to know about about you or doing business with you? And where can people find you, Larry, on the internet? Yeah, uh, I'm very easily accessible. My website is larryflowers.com. Folks can go on so, uh, Instagram, which is kind of where I, I, I sit the most, work the most. Uh, Larry Flowers Jewelry on Instagram. Uh, anyone that DMs me or reaches out to me gets response uh, no later than one day. I get a lot of DMs, which is a very good thing, but sometimes I have a hard time keeping up, but I always do. Um, or you can email me at Larry at LarryFlowers.com. But basically just go to my website, LarryFlowers.com and kind of use, there'll be some of the links that can reach out to me direct. And uh, like I said, I'm very easy, easily accessible. People will deal with me direct. And if anyone has any questions about anything or interested about building something or engagement rings and wants to have a very simple, honest conversation about, you know, whatever the case may be in the jewelry or watch space, uh, I'd love to have it. This has been the Superlative Podcast interview with Larry Flowers. Larry, thank you so much. Ariel, you're the man. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Superlative Podcast. This show relies on support from you, the audience. Please subscribe, review, and share Superlative with your friends. To get the latest watch news and enthusiast commentary, also listen to the Blog to Watch weekly podcast. For show ideas, comments, or business, please contact us at podcasts at a blogtowatch.com.